Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, where we talk about advertising, media and marketing. I'm Omar Oaks, media and tech editor at Campaign, and welcome to a special episode in association with Snapchat. I'm really excited about this episode because we're going to be doing a deep dive into an issue that regular listeners will have heard me bang on about before, um, because I think it's really important, which is how this COVID-19 pandemic is impacting on the welfare and fortunes of younger generations in our industry. Yes, coronavirus seems to disproportionately affect older people in terms of a physical threat, um, but the mental health and economic impact on young people is having a profound impact too. So who better to help us with that than Snapchat? The communication platform reaches over 90% of people aged between 13 and 24, and 75%, three quarters of people aged between 13 and 34 in the UK. Through its Meet the Snapchat Generation campaign this year, it's tried to shine a light on the values and behaviours of this important generation. So we'll get into that. We'll get into what the longer term outlook is for this generation of people who are the first to grow up as digitally native and may have compelling reasons to be optimistic about the future. And with me today is Snapchat's regional general manager for not just the UK, but Germany, Austria and Switzerland too. It's Ed Couchman. Ed, how are you? I am very well indeed. Thank you, Omar. Uh, I'd like to share with you a new uh, Norwegian word I've learnt this week from the team in Norway, actually, which is, and I'm going to probably pronounce this incorrectly, but kush, which essentially is a word that describes all the things that make you feel warm and cosy inside. And I thought if ever 2020 needed some things that made us feel warm and cosy inside, it is this is the year for that. Ah, kush, that's lovely. Um, that may, that's starting to get me in the festive mood for Christmas as well. Ed, let me start off by asking, now we've been working from home for several months now, are there any big changes to your working life that you think will remain when we return to business as usual? Um, I do think we'll probably maintain this sense of flexibility. I, I find it really hard to think of us all going back to the office Monday to Friday, nine to five or nine to six, or whatever it might be. And at Snap, we're certainly thinking the office that will likely become more of a space maybe similar to a college or university library where we come together to connect or collaborate or communicate, but essentially where we have additional resources where we all come together, work, and then go maybe to different places to execute on that work, essentially. And I think that's the way we think of the workspaces of the future. Just before we bring in our special guests, um, give me a peek behind the curtain, if you would. How have young people, say 16 to 24-year-olds, how has their time on platforms since Snapchat in particular changed since March as we've lived more of our lives online? Do you know what? I think it's really just accelerated many of the things that we were seeing and experiencing pre-pandemic and pre-COVID, that young people particularly are spending much more time on their phones And of course, when you can't be physically connected, then you want to be digitally connected. So messaging and chatting to your best friends, uh, playing games and uh, maybe having some fun with filters and maybe catching up on some content as well. But all of those things we've seen accelerate across the platform, essentially, since that original lockdown in March. Yeah, um, certainly we're seeing across the board in media a lot of trends accelerating this year. Okay. First, joining us is Natalie Bell, Managing Director of Manning Gottlieb OMD, the Omnicom Media Agency, which has just turned 30 years old. Um, And a good time to 30 years old because you've had um, a pretty outstanding year, haven't you? Uh, You were Campaigns Agency of the Year 
the Campaign Media Awards and Media Week Awards. And Natalie, you yourself were just 36, an age I know myself right now, when you became MD back in 2015, as well as planning and buying for the media for brands like John Lewis, Sony Pictures, Virgin Media. Um, your OmniGov division is delivering the media for the government's public health messaging, which is obviously an important time to do that, as well as other messaging the government has been trying to do this year. Uh, Natalie, what indelible scars, good or bad, is 2020 going to live on your working life? First of all, hello. Hello, Omar. Thank you for having me. Um, and also, uh, as you referenced, the 30 years, I am loving that at the moment because everyone's wishing me happy 30th, which just feels fantastic. <laughs> uh, I, I've probably aged quite a lot, as many people have in this year, though. Um, I think... Look, it's been hard. There's no escaping that. Um, you know, in our industry, we've got uh, clients that have pulled spend quite dramatically through the early parts of the year. We've got amazing relationships out in the market with with many media owners. And that's been a challenge, you know, having to, to move that spend around to mitigate risk. Um, but it's been an amazing response from the industry. Um, on top of that, though, we've got clients that have done exceptionally well through this period as well, um, you know, tech clients clients, etc. Um, and on top of that, we've, as you quite rightly pointed out, we've, we've got OmniGov, we look after the gov government, including all of the COVID comms, um, and Paul Knight and the unit that, that look after government have been uh, working their little behinds off, um, trying to do everything that's needed in, in very tough conditions. So it will leave scars uh, in terms of how hard it's been. But do you know what, I think we all have to take the positives from this year as well, in terms of that pivot and digital acceleration as businesses in terms of the collaboration and the spirit by which everyone's done this um, and and just in terms of the learnings we've had in how we work and how we live and how we work together so yes it's been hard I think also um, it's in, you talk about indelible scars it's incredible I think how quickly we move from one part of this to the next um, and actually we, we, we sort of recover very quickly and we move on so uh tough year but uh, I think uh, in some ways fantastically positive as well. And finally we're joined by Helen Calcraft founding partner of the creative agency Lucky Generals. Helen you were another young achiever weren't you at AMV and then after that you went on to found some of the most successful UK advertising startups we've had over the last couple of decades MCBD which became Dare and now of course Lucky Generals which creates ads for Amazon, Yorkshire Tea and the Co-op among others. Hello, Helen. Uh, in your memoirs, which I hope you're definitely going to write soon, um, what will be the thing you remember most amid all the drama and strangeness of this year? Oh, it's such a hard question. There have been so many extraordinary things that have happened to all of us, really. I guess from a professional standpoint, you know, we've had some incredible, very, as, as Natalie was saying, incredibly difficult and challenging times trying to keep our little company together to keep the culture going and to keep the laughter and I guess for me, one of, the, one of the kind of good moments has been when we've come together, we've made a big thing of people's birthdays and the whole company has got together to do sort of silly, fun things on people's birthdays to, to mark those close relationships. And I just remember some ridiculous videos and things that we've done, uh, spoof videos and all those things that I just kind of, you know, keep that lovely connection that we've got as a company. But I guess for me personally, I'm lucky enough to have two Gen Z daughters at home with me and I've had a kind of delicious time with them. And one Saturday night, rather spontaneously, we just did a little dance and put it out on social. Uh, and ever and we did a, and that then became a thing and we did a dance every single Saturday and we marked every Saturday of lockdown by doing something just daft and silly. 
And I guess as a mother, there's something delicious about having your teenagers even prepared to let you come into a dance situation with them. So for me, that's been very memorable. Very good. All right. Um, So let's start by looking at Gen Z and how Gen Z is going to shape the future of work. So Ed, you've done a lot of work on this. Tell us what we should know about this generation and what your experience has been in terms of the challenges they faced at work this year. So Gen Z are anyone born between 1996 and 2010. And essentially we passed a really important milestone this year when Gen Z will comprise 32% of the global population of 7.7 billion. So essentially they will be the largest cohort the world has ever seen. And I think there are some myths about Gen Z actually. but you know, from research we've done with various providers from, say, Cantar uh, or through um, the Census Bureau, we understand that they, they continue to grow and the expenditure they will spend will basically be one in three of all purchases, essentially. Um, and right now, that's right now. So this year, one in three, all purchases will be spent by a millennial. Um, and it's estimated that Gen Z have around 323 billion uh, direct buying power. So they're a pretty big group, spending lots of money, doing lots of things. But I think counter to that, though, there is also a narrative that's come through from the pandemic that they're going to be most impacted through a whole bunch of reasons, say for maybe some of the economic contraction that we're expecting in, in the years ahead, uh, and particularly from new entrants in, into the uh, working world as well. And I think from SNAP, we, we think we have a role to play to be a kind of optimistic uh, champion of young people actually and um, we're trying to do that with our own teams so there's a whole bunch of things we've been doing with the team to make sure we engage them and listen to them and feel motivated um, we've established some really strong ERG groups uh, employee resource groups to make sure they the teams have a voice again to leadership we've uh, given everyone a uh, subscription to a mindfulness app uh, headspace because what we heard was actually a, a real sense of feeling overwhelmed or feeling some degrees of anxiety and we thought it's important that we took a really positive and uh, proactive response to that to help give teams sort of tools and resources to kind of manage some of those feelings essentially and then I think Helen touched on this but how do we keep connected because I think if we weren't careful then we may be losing some of the things we cherish the most and that's the culture essentially in working with people and we've been much more thoughtful around and purposeful about how we keep our culture and from also celebrating birthdays or new starters. And one thing we've actually found, uh, which feels very analog in our digital world, but essentially is posting birthday cards or posting small thoughtful gifts to the team. And actually that joy of receiving something in the post where you spend all of your day digitally and virtually, uh, we've received such good feedback from doing that. Oh, that's um, really nice. Natalie, I won't ask you about your particular meditation habits or not. Um, But in general, what Ed has just said um, about the challenges that young people face, does that, I mean, he's obviously coming from a a progressive tech platform company. In terms of a media agency, you've been around for 30 years now. Does that that resonate with the challenges that you see as well? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the first thing to say, just to further Ed's point about culture, you know, we're, we're 30 years this year. And um, I think most uh, businesses will say they've got a special culture, but I I do genuinely believe that Manning Gottlieb do. And I inherited that culture and I'm a caretaker of that culture. And I think never has that been more concerning than this year because you have to, you know, you're sort of resetting how that culture lives uh, when when people's lives are so collapsed into this sort of work life. And, and, you know, I think the, the concern at the moment is we're quite intergenerational. 
So in this environment, everybody's needs are different. Everybody's home working patterns are different. Everybody, you know, it, it, it becomes ever more apparent uh, and important. And you can't have a, you know, homogenous view of culture. You can't have a homogenous view of working behaviours. So I think for, um, for Gen Z in particular, the challenge is, is it's formative years. It's formative years in the, in, in the working environment. And so not only are we learning about what Gen Z need from work and want and expect from us, but we're learning it in a COVID environment. Um, so it, it takes a lot of hard work. And I think it's all about adapting and being personal and not just having that one approach to everyone. Um, it's having the micro approaches and then and then somehow trying to to gather that into one holistic agency culture but my concern at the moment is we've got this generation of people coming into our industry who are in their formative years um, you know and they're, they're not having the social uh, rewards that our industry give them uh, they're they're probably struggling a little in their home working environment much more so than others um, and and also you're not able to just turn to someone next year and go how do I do that or how do I, you know, it's that sort of learning by osmosis as much as anything. So ensuring the technology and the ways of working and the sort of the quick chat function on anything is as important as the sort of the big things you build into your culture at large. And Helen, when running a creative agency, shed some light on how it's impacted on them within your business in particular. Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's interesting because there are, we've, we've do, we, one of the things that we've tried to do is take a lot of soundings and understand how everyone is feeling. And as Natalie says, because we are also multi-generational, it's really important to kind of keep listening and keep understanding how everyone is feeling regardless of, of, of age and, and status in the company. And I think for us it's been interesting because a lot of the younger people, and we have, I mean, I, we all d- dislike the term Gen Z, but we have a lot of people in their, in their very early 20s who are, you know, who have found lockdown incredibly hard for all the reasons that you've described, Omar. The, you know, the idea that you can't get out, you can't see and mix with other people, you're not in the room learning by osmosis from your bosses and friends and colleagues at work, you haven't got that stimulus. They found that very, very difficult. So, you know, we've been very conscious of that and wherever possible, we, we took Boris's sort of missive that we should work from home if we can to encompass mental health as well as, um, you know, physical well-being. So there are some people in our company and particularly the younger ones who perhaps are either living with their parents and therefore working in their bedroom. So their working life is kind of very restricted or they're in apartments with no outside space or maybe, you know, no one to see or talk to. So we took a kind of quite broad view of of people's health and well-being. And we said, come to work for a few hours, you know, obviously COVID safe. But if you need to for your mental well-being, as well as, as keeping an eye on people's physical well-being. Um, but what's also been interesting looking at younger people is that for cr- people who have the creative job in a creative agency, because obviously there are lots of different jobs in a creative agency, for the creatives themselves, there's been upsides as well as downsides. So, you know, the, the thought of coming up with ideas in the peace and quiet of your own home, in your own time, in your own space, whether that's in the shower or in the garden, a lot of our young creatives have found that to be actually kind of rather wonderful and quite, quite um, expansive in terms of their own creative thinking. 
but they've equally found it very hard to not then sit in a room and organically develop those ideas. So it's a, it's a, it's a sort of, you know, cure its egg, really, of, of challenges for anyone who's got creativity in their, in their job spec. And a question I've got for all of you, I'll go in turn. What have you learned this year, Edzum? You, you mentioned mindfulness before. Are there other things that you found have really helped to engage younger people? I think there's been a whole bunch of things that we've tried to do. And I, I don't necessarily feel this one thing. I said it's a whole range of communications and opportunities. Anything from trying to use Slack more than, say, email, um, say, video calls, of course. One of the things we heard loud and clear, though, was, and I was really struck by a conversation with a team member, that actually she was saying she actually spoke to relatively few people a day because her, her day-to-day role only needed, uh, she had two immediate team members. And what we then thought about trying to do was try and recreate some of that sort of the magic that happens in the office from uh, just bumping into people and having conversations. So we created some local lunch bubbles. So based on where you were, where you live within a small radius of just two or three miles, if you wanted to, then you kind of submitted your postcode and then we match people up from right across the office. So Snap has about 200 people in London. And we got together then teams of, say, computer engineers who've been working on uh, sort of AR visualisation alongside the commercial team uh, and actually but live within a close radius together. And that helped recreate some of those natural interactions within um, the office that weren't really happening. So communication was great up and down the organisation, but less so across the organisation. Mm. So think about how we can try and recreate that as being important to us and also help some of that social glue. Natalie, before we went into the pandemic, a lot of the, the conversation about working flexibly, I, I suppose, was we were thinking more about older people and people who have kids. Or Whenever we return to normal, hopefully not too long into next year, do you feel that the, the flexible working piece is going to be ultimately still framed around dealing with kind of senior people? Or do you think we will get better at actually thinking about how young people uh, need to be catered for as well? Yeah, I think um, I think it's we'll be thinking about it across the board. For us, the interesting thing at the moment is um, I know a lot of companies and, and uh, quite rightly have, have, have said already what their policy next year is going to be and been very clear about, you know, working from home or, or, or going back to the office. I think for us, week on week, people's views of what they want to do and how they want to work change. And week on week, as we learn more about uh, this pandemic and how we might come through it um, people have a different attitude to that so I think we have to be flexible in our approach to flexibility and just keep going with uh, with feedback and understanding and knowing we actually are quite heavy on uh, on younger people because we recruited so quickly as we grew um, and uh, a lot of those people actually don't want to come into the office because um, they are now they've moved out of London to stay with their parents again to save money or you know things have changed in their in their lives so we're trying to work through what does that mean on a slightly more permanent basis and actually should we be rethinking people that we bring into our business as well so that it's not the usual pool of people and we're not doing it with a with a frame of this is your London office and this is how you will work with us you know it's actually enabled us to think broadly about how we go out to the talent pool that we can attract, not just how we deal with the talent pool that we already have. Um, so I think that's really interesting. And we just have to be as empathetic and flexible to everyone's needs whilst making it work for everyone together at the same time as well. I want to bring on Helen on that. But before I do, Natalie, just explain a bit more what you mean about how you might change how you approach bringing in new talent what, what do you mean yeah. specifically well so um so first you know how we, how we expect people to work so we we tend to be an office-based 
or we have tended to be an office-based agency, um, which means we're a London-based agency on the most part and have explored, uh, you know, uh, non-London locations. But in a world where location can be anything now, I think it resets how you go out to maybe a virtual remote working network of people. Um, So it changes how you go out. And then the wonderful thing about that is as well, um, as we all should be doing is, you can look at different talent pools um, and, and as we have been as an industry o- over the last few years to say, OK, so if we do want to look at people that are coming from underprivileged backgrounds, how can we make it work for them, not just for us? Um, and I think the flexibility that this year's seen has meant that we can almost reset everything and, and look at how we can change completely, uh, which, is a, which is actually quite exciting. So long as we put the right framework around that, that means that people can thrive as well. So, Helen, what do you think about that? Are you are you going to reset everything when it comes to um, your approach to hiring young talent? Do you think? I mean, I I agree. I really agree with Natalie's point about keeping a flexible approach to working flexibly. I think we don't yet know how this is going to land, how people are going to feel, and how they have been feeling across the pandemic has definitely changed and sort of seesawed a bit from I, I I could imagine never coming back into work to I want to come back as soon as I can full time and everything in between so I think this has been a kind of pretty traumatic journey for most people at, at, at different times across the pandemic no one's come out of this unscathed and without without some some wounds and some damage um and some, and, and some time will be needed to kind of recover and reset as we you know, get the get the vaccination spread through the country and, and some level of normality starts to emerge, even though it'll be a new level of normality. So I think trying to decide how it's all going to work right now, you know, I admire people who are doing that, but I, I, I kind of tend to agree with that, that we should probably keep a little bit flexible on that. And I think this is a really difficult philosophical question for, you know, for creative agencies, but also for most companies where, so much of what makes the company special and unique is the culture. And how do you... I mean, we've, we've been fighting hard to maintain our culture. And, you know, like the conversation we've already been having, we've done everything from uh, uh, the sort of fun end. We have a thing called quarantine, which is every single day, all the way through lockdown, people were able to do quizzes. We had, we had one guy, one of our Gen Zers does impressions. He does brilliant impressions of the founders. So he'd be uploading those. There'd be memes. There'd be, you know, there'd be a kind of general sense of fun as a way of keeping that culture together. Right the way through to we also invested in unlimited counselling time for all of our staff anonymously. Anyone who wanted an hour with this wonderful company called um, Self Space and Shoreditch could just do that. And people have genuinely taken advantage of that right the way across the company. So there's everything from kind of keeping the fun to taking care of yourself when things feel really, really hard. And that's about surviving the pandemic. That's about how do we hold on to the semblance of culture and togetherness, which is so important to our differentiation in any creative agency, but I guess across most companies. The big philosophical question is how do you build a culture if people are not together? You know, we've been we've been drawing on our togetherness, and I, I don't know, I don't know if if um, you guys, Ed and Natalie, have found this. It's been really hard for new joiners unbelievably hard for new joiners who you know people who may have joined in Jan Feb and March to kind of feel part of this so how do you then get lots of new joiners in and take a much more kind of open view geographically and also whether it's balance of work and still have 
uniqueness in your culture. And I don't think we've got answers on that yet. I really don't. And the other thing I think we're all wrestling with is what doesn't seem to work. And I don't know if, if, if Ed and Natalie, you find this when you do a well, you can do an in-person meeting or, or, or conversation or you can do Zoom. You can't combine them. And we've tried this where you've got four people in the office and then three people on Zoom. And it's just awful. And we haven't got a solution to that, I don't think, yet. I'm not saying we won't, because I do think in the pandemic we've all learned extraordinary inventiveness, actually. Our, our desire to be together, build culture, to have a sense of belonging is, is almost unstoppable as human beings, isn't it? But we don't have solutions to some of these flexible working problems so if if you know one of our one of our best creatives is based up in liverpool you know we we he's worked with us since the beginning for seven years so we're drawing on our you know our relationships to keep that going but how do we do that when there are five of us in the office and he's in liverpool on zoom how do we make that work I, i'm still striving for answers and 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 i think we're all still learning and developing how we're going to manage it's interesting because I think one of the things it reveals is that actually Zoom is a great leveller. We're all set the same shape boxes and we're all equal. And what we found was actually from what maybe more introverted characters, they were speaking up much more. And they, they felt more comfortable to do that in the Zoom environment. But I agree, Helen, when we had two or three people in the office, actually on one call and then people at home, it just felt the office then become the centre of gravity. Mm. And, we, and we lost the benefit of Zoom if everyone uh, be able to speak up. The other thing we found with new starters, actually, because you had that sort of small window into their lives, you often saw pictures of their family or the books they're reading and felt that you knew them really well. And then realised when you did actually see them physically, you were actually that was the first time you see seen them physically, but felt that you, you sort of had this chemistry already, which was really strange. But I think it's a very fair point around how do we integrate and make sure that when they, people join our companies and Snap particularly, that they feel they're set up for success and go on to flourish. And you're right, I think we, we don't have the answer either, but we're certainly experimenting with a few things. And again, I'd, I'd just add to that as well. I think um, it gets even more complicated in, in practical terms when you have uh, multiple clients who also require, um, you know, certain times of day and also want to work around certain things. Um, and one of the hardest things we found during the summer, actually, when, you know, some people were going back in and I myself was going back into the office, um, is that diaries don't match. So I was ending up doing Teams calls on a train whilst I was walking because you have people working from home with, you know, with Teams, 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 and then you have people that are commuting and you're trying to work around safe times to commute. So um, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think this is why we should really, really praise ourselves for how we've adapted, you know, f f across every part of, of industry. And we just have to keep adapting, unfortunately, because we just, I agree with Helen, to say we've got the answers is bonkers. We've just got to keep going and work it through. And Ed, we've talked a lot just now about how our own businesses are being affected and steps that we may be able to do to improve life for young people in our industry. Um, so if you're a brand marketer, what are some of the misconceptions, if you like, that maybe marketers might have about young consumers that your research has looked at? Um, so we've been working with Kantar to kind of better understand Gen Z or young people. What we found with Kantar was there are a few key inflection points when young people start forming their brand preference, essentially through their early adulthood. And teenagers particularly, you know, sort of 16, 17, 18 year olds, kind of express strong affinity preferences uh, with brands in certain categories, but really in a large part as a means of kind of expressing themselves, that the values and philosophies that match with a brand might think, yeah, that's what I want to stand for as a person. 
So I think that's the first thing. The second thing we we'll say is actually, uh, again, young people, so Gen Z and millennials, rely much more on recommendations from friends and family when they're kind of shaping those brand preferences. So compare that to, say, to the baby boomers or Gen X, uh, who rely much more on their kind of own endeavours, their own research and decision-making to form those preferences. Young people would turn to their friends, essentially. Uh, and then th- thirdly, I think there's this thing around sort of speed of understanding, comprehensional cognition. So young people obviously spend a lot of time on their phones. They spend a lot of time consuming content on social media platforms. But essentially, the speed at which they're kind of uh, understanding that information, it has no impact on their ability to then recall what they've just seen, essentially. And I think that's often uh, a myth we hear when we're speaking to uh, CMOs and, and media directors around, actually, if, they, if young people are spending just a few seconds with my communications, will they understand it? Will they remember it? Will it have an impact? And we found very clearly with the Canton study that, yes, they will. So are you saying it's because maybe these this is a digital native generation and they're used to seeing a lot of content coming at them quickly the recall is actually a lot better than you'd think in short yes essentially that we're saying that uh, young people have the ability on their cognitive load to be able to understand appreciate and remember some of those communication messages a lot faster say than your average 45 year old male like me and the other thing we also heard back from the Kantar was study was actually when the creative is crafted with a kind of mobile screen in mind then actually that also makes the creative uh, resonate more deeply, essentially. I've seen that research as well, and the evidence is that, that this generation, they've grown up with it, they haven't learnt it, and they're used to constantly learning and evolving and changing their, their digital understanding and digital usage, and they are very much quicker than, than we might be in our generation. But I would say you probably need to balance that. You, really strong brands with, with deep meaning where people kind of know when they see that brand shows up, what that brand stands for and what that brand is likely to want to, to engage with consumers about. You have permission to do things in two or three or four seconds if you want to. But if you don't have that basic strength of your brand, it's much harder. So I think, you know, there is, there is a... There is a kind of lovely virtuous circle where a brand that really kind of knows what it stands for. I mean, I take, for example, one of the ones I work on, which is Yorkshire Tea, which has such a strong voice, such a strong opinion, such a strong way of showing up. You can afford to do things incredibly efficiently with this audience, provided you're starting from a point of view of a brand that has a strong sense of self. Uh, And, you know, there are there are ways to get to a strong sense of self with the brand. You know, you could have been around for decades and, and built that understanding up or be advertising on more traditional media to bring that sense of, of understanding. But you've got a lovely uh, ability to have that virtuous circle of, of strong brand, quick communication with this younger audience, which perhaps you might not have done in previous generations. And how do you interpret um, what Ed was saying about um, how this particular generation, they're more likely to be influenced in their brand purchasing decisions by recommendations from their network. Does does that mean that, you know, um, you're going to increasingly use more influencers in brand communications? I mean, I think this is a, a really challenging and interesting point for the next generation of, of people in our industry, because I think we're seeing quite big differences between millennials and Gen Z. And again, I don't like either of those terms, but people, <laughs> in their teens up to their early 20s and then people in their 20s to to mid 30s there's been quite a a, there's quite a big difference in terms of perhaps I've you know I'm I'm a millennial I want to kind of reach out and start speaking to large groups people don't care if I know them or not I just want to kind of transmit my personality and my brand to what you're seeing with Gen Z's is I'm much more concerned about having deeper 
perhaps smaller groups of friends around me. My friendships are as important to me as my family and therefore what my close circle thinks is incredibly important to me and more important than perhaps it was to that to those first adopters of, of some of these social platforms who were all about the numbers. This is about a slightly more private, slightly more intimate, slightly more smaller sphere of influence. And I think that will have a big impact on brand marketing. And I think, you know, what we're seeing is... There is a there's a real growing together of what a what a brand does in terms of the product it makes, but also how that brand behaves outside of the product that it makes. What kind of employer are they? What are their ethics? What are their values? And we're seeing, you know, this younger generation in particular making their making their brand decisions on not just do I like the taste of that particular drink. What does that company do? How are they behaving? What's their record on the environment? What's their record on race? And those two things coming together. And, and recommendation through friends and through your, through your close circle on those kinds of things is got to be something that brand marketers have got to take very, very seriously going forward. This is now a, a three-dimensional view of, of a brand that incorporates the employer behaviour uh, as well as the brand uh, and product delivery. That was really borne out in the research, actually, Helen. When we asked uh, sort of British UK Snapchatters, they actually said they were five times more likely to listen to recommendations from that close circle mm. than there were celebrities or influencers. Mm. That close circle of friends and family is the most important influence mm. on young people. So, Natalie, when you hear some of the things that Ed is saying in this research, um, does that mean big brands like John Lewis need to be looking more at the, the recommendations piece? Micro-influencers is something that people often say. John Lewis Christmas is obviously quite a, you know, a big old affair in its own right, but, um, but people often forget that underneath that is a lot of other John Lewis advertising around their departments and are much more product-focused. We also look after Estee Lauder companies. So if I look at both of those who... Uh, are trying to reach Gen Z for makeup, for example. It's a really interesting environment, and I think just picking up on some of the stuff that Ed and Helen were talking about. At the moment, Gen Z are still quite a young consumer audience, um, and there are certain behaviours that actually I think, uh, whilst they, they could become too simple, are quite straightforward. They're probably a bit easier to reach than other generations because they're, they're really only in a few places, um, which is interesting they're a bit more straightforward you know it's be straight with me be authentic and be straight with me um no no bs um (laughs) you need to have values as a as a brand i won't trust you if you're pushing messaging to me i don't i'll ignore it so the two second thing um yes i can process information quickly but it's got to be worthwhile um or i'll ignore it there's some sort of straightforward behaviours that we can play on. Also, the funnel collapses. So, you know, in a social environment, I, I on, and I know we talk about funnel collapsing quite a lot, but as a 22-year-old, as a I can see an ad on social for a makeup brand I've never heard of before, see an influencer talk about it, click through, buy it, done. And, and so, you know, that is a very different purchasing behaviour. However, what I would say is a bit like talking about Gen Z in an office environment and COVID and everything else, um, we still don't really know how this audience are going to behave when it comes to long-term relationships with brands. Um, And so we're seeing a lot of these behaviours play out. And actually, um, you know, there are some makeup brands that we're seeing younger audiences attach themselves to quite quickly. And actually, it's easy to launch makeup brands. Um, But then they'll quickly move to another one. So... I think uh, we're still learning, I guess. Um, and there are some definite learnings already that I think are fairly straightforward. 
But I think, again, we have to adapt and, and follow what this audience do, especially as this audience are coming through this period as well and, and sort of how they behave might change. Ed, to Natalie's point just now, we, um, are there any clues in the research that might suggest what we could find a year from now? What we did find was actually that um, young people do have quite a strong brand loyalty, actually, once those preferences are formed. I think that that's interesting because Natalie kind of painted a picture where actually that might not be the case. Um, so I think we definitely that come through. Uh, I don't think that's because of COVID, though. I think they're actually just they're kind of stick with brands they're, they're familiar with. Uh, but I think the truth is, uh, Omar, that actually brand loyalty is incredibly different and nuanced across products and categories and, and different countries. Um, and we're just trying to help advertisers to begin to understand that. I don't think we're trying to say we have all the answers, but we definitely want to try and help them understand that, essentially. One thing I think might be worth drawing out, though, is, uh, and I think makeup is a really good example of this, actually, this sort of notion of the collapse of the marketing funnel, the purchase funnel, and thinking about how COVID is accelerated or really demonstrably shifted some things were happening before. And I think one of the things we've seen is around augmented reality, essentially. And I think there's this much often quoted uh, notion that the next big technology thing will start off as a toy. And I think AR is a great example of this, where we might have played with a vomiting rainbow or dog ear lenses, but now we're starting to see some real clear communications and business impact from augmented reality. And COVID's accelerated this, particularly around shoppable uh, AR, essentially. And the biggest uh, thing we've seen this year, the biggest trend we've seen this year, is from uh, try-on. So essentially, in a world where you can't try things on, a digital try-on becomes really, really important. And particularly with makeup and uh, colour palettes, so the ability to use AR to paint your nails or try a new blush or try a new lipstick. So not only are you discovering it on social platforms to begin with, you're then actually trying that product yourself and then actually the ability to purchase directly from AR. It, uh, we've seen a huge increase in that. So makeup and then um, trainers. And uh, we've had a number of uh, activations from fashion and clothing brands about trying on trainers, essentially. And the, the technology behind that then has allowed people to try it, see it and then go and, and purchase. Yeah, I just add to that. But I couldn't agree more in certain categories where... Uh, in-store experience you know was handled in sort of very high touch uh, experience for customers we've we've certainly found that that is being not replaced but at the moment um, we're using digital experiences and, and and working with social platforms to provide those digital experiences to compensate for for that lack of personal experience in real life and finally Helen are you are you seeing any trends you think from it if we're having this conversation a year from now you'll think oh yeah that was kind of accelerated because of Covid will have a lasting impact in the work that you do for Yorkshire Tea and others going forward. I mean I think this kind of massive increase of people um, you know reacting and, 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 and living and being on their on their phones and how they communicate and I, I, mean, I always see this with my own daughter's behavior they now think it's extremely rude to take a fo to, to phone somebody uh, and they are always on their snapchat stories and, and I think that this has accelerated a set of behaviors with younger people where you know they are that their phone is much more of an extension of their of their personality and of their of their desires and of their preferences so I think any brand that doesn't understand that interplay and doesn't understand how communication is changing, actually. I mean, the use of, 
of, of video, the use of photography, the use of emojis to express how you're feeling at any given moment, I think is going to have to impact on how brands think about communicating with younger consumers. And there's been a huge acceleration of that in in COVID because that's how we've all got sustenance and, and particularly younger people have had that sense of company and companionship, which isn't oral. It isn't I'm speaking to you on the phone. It's I'm sending you my feelings and my emotions in a, in a different uh, visually led way, which I think is is fascinating and and I suspect will lead to some some lasting trends. And obviously, you know, completely agree with with Ed and Nat on, you know, how people try in a world where you can't go, if you're if you're Estee Lauder, it must be so difficult because your whole brand is about a person sitting with you, advising you, trying things on, you know, getting you to buy premium things. And all that is taken away from you. The department store has been shut down for the best part of a year. Brands, interesting new brands like Beauty Pie coming in and saying that there's a different way to do it. Uh, and I think, I, I, I just, th- I don't think those behaviours will change now. They're, you know, we are, we're used to a different way of living, communicating with each other and also shopping. Um, and I can't see how that will go back. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you so much to our guests for a really interesting discussion. Thank you to Ed Couchman, Natalie Bell and Helen Calcraft. This was a special episode sponsored by Snapchat. And if you want to read more about the research that we discussed today, go to snapchat.com slash generation. Of course, please do subscribe to the campaign podcast so you don't miss out on all the latest news and analysis about what's going on in the UK advertising industry. And you can read our latest news and see what we're writing about in terms of the latest ad campaigns at campaignlive.co.uk. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. Please stay safe and goodbye. Goodbye.